Ezekiel chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. And you, O son of man, take a sharp sword, use it as a barber's razor, and pass it over your head and your beard. Then take balances for weighing and divide the hair. A third part you shall burn in the fire in the midst of the city, when the days of the siege are completed. And a third part you shall take and strike with the sword all around the city. And a third part you shall scatter to the wind, and I will unsheathe the sword after them. And you shall take from these a small number and bind them in the skirt of your robe. <clears throat> and of these again you should take some and cast them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. From there a fire will come out into all the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of nations with countries all around her. And she has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries all around her. For they have rejected my rules and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you are more turbulent than the nations that are all around you and have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules and have not even acted according to the rules of the nations that are all around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, even I am against you and I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. And because of all your abominations, I will do with you what I have never yet done and the like of which I will never do again. Therefore, fathers shall eat their sons in your midst and sons shall eat their fathers, and I will execute judgments on you, and any of you who survive I will scatter to all the winds. Therefore I, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will withdraw my eye, and my eye will not spare, and I will have no pity. A third part of you shall die of pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. A third part shall fall by the sword all around you, and a third part I will scatter to all the winds and will unsheathe the sword after them. Thus shall my anger spend itself, and I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself, and they shall know that I am the Lord, that I have spoken in my jealousy. When I spend my fury upon them, moreover, I will make you a desolation and an object of reproach among the nations all around you and in the sight of all who pass by. You shall be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and a horror to the nations all around you. When I execute judgments on you in anger and fury and with furious rebukes, I am the Lord, I have spoken. And when I send against you the deadly arrows of famine, arrows for destruction, which I will send to destroy you. And when I bring more and more famine upon you and break your supply of bread, I will send famine and wild beasts against you. And they will rob you of, of your children. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you. And I will bring the sword upon you. I am the Lord. I have spoken. And that's a fun passage, isn't it? <clears throat> like I said at the, before we got started, uh, before we started recording, because a lot of this has already been covered when we examined Leviticus chapter 26, we're not going to spend too much time in this chapter. My plan is hopefully to finish this whole chapter tonight. But there are a few things that I want to take some time tonight in the time we have to pull out from this section. God has Ezekiel cut off all of his hair and his beard to picture the humiliation of Israel, that is the humiliation that Israel was to experience. He also used the portions of his hair to picture what was to befall the people of Israel. So he was to take a sword and use it as a barber's razor and cut off all of his hair and his beard. He was to be totally shamed. But he was to gather all that hair and he was to weigh it out and take it into three segments. One third of his hair he was to take and he was to burn it in the fire. Take a look at, at chapter 5, look at verse 2. It says, A third part you shall take and strike with the sword all around... Sorry, back up here, sorry. 
verse 2, third part you shall burn in the fire in the midst of the city. Jump over to verse 12. He explains what this means. A third part you shall, of you shall die of pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. So a third part was to be inside the city and they were to be burned with fire. The hair was. But then he explains that a third of the, the nation was going to die of pestilence and famine, plague, diseases, and famine inside the city. And as you know, that happened when they were besieged for those two years and they were starved, and in that disease started to spread, and a, lot, a third of them died. And then he says, a third are to be killed outside the city. Go back to verse 2, and you'll see. It says, in a third part you shall take and strike with the sword all around the city. Go back to verse, tw uh, verse 12 again. He says, and a third part shall fall by the sword all around you. Now, as you know, if you know the, the history from 2 Kings, we've looked at it earlier in our study, there were some that made a hole in the wall and snuck out and tried to escape. And what happened to them? They were killed outside the city. And then another third was to be scattered to the wind. He was to take that hair and just throw it out to the wind. We'll go back to verse 2 again. You'll see in a third part, you shall scatter to the wind and I will unsheath the sword after them. And you go over to verse 12, we see the rest of that prophecy explained. In the third part, I will scatter to all the winds and unsheath the sword after them. Another third survived the attack on the city, didn't die in the city during the plague and the pestilence and all the famine. They weren't part of the group that escaped outside the city, but then were killed. This was a third that were scattered to all the nations. Some went down to Egypt and others scattered different places to just get away. And what happened is many of them were killed as well. That's why he said, I'm going to unsheathe the sword after them. But there's still from this three sections of hair, He's told, go back to verse two, and you, sorry, verse three, and you'll see he's told, and you shall take from these, this is the ones that were scattered to the wind, you shall take from these a small number and bind them in the skirts of your robe. He was to take a small portion of the hair that was to be scattered to the wind, and he was to put them and protect them in the, in, in the hem of his garment, if you will. Now, we're going to look at that later on. We're going to look at that later on. Um, in our study tonight, because I want to talk to you a lot about the remnant and really kind of lay it out for you when we talk about the remnant, because there is some confusion as to what the remnant really means and who are the remnant. And so we're going to deal with that a little bit later tonight. But look at verse 4 now. And of these, this is the group that he puts in his, the hem of his robe, of these again you shall take some and cast them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. And from there fire will come out into all the house of Israel. From this remnant, Ezekiel was to take some and throw them into the fire, picturing a future judgment on the remnant. All right, so are you with me so far? He's to cut off all his hair, head and beard and everything. He's to pile it up, and then he's to weigh it out in three equal segments. One third, he was to put, remember he's got the diorama, if you will, of the city, and he was to put them inside the city and to burn them. They were going to be killed by the plague and the famine. Another third was to be outside the city, and he's take a sword and chop up the hair. And these are going to be those who escape the city, but they're going to be killed by the enemy that comes after them. Then another third was just to be scattered to the wind, and they were going to be scattered to just run for their lives, and the sword was going to chase them, and many of them will be killed. Of that last third that was scattered to the wind, he was to take some of those and protect it in the hem of his garment. But of that small segment, the remnant, if you will, which we'll get to later on, he was to take some of those and throw them into the fire, it just describing the fact there's going to be a future judgment on even that remnant. All right? That's very, very important for us later on in our study. Probably not tonight. We'll talk about the remnant a lot tonight, but we won't get into what's going to happen to the remnant until we get later in our study of Ezekiel. 
But I'm just going to ask you a question. Last time we were together, we looked at how there was going to be a famine in the city of Jerusalem there, was they were besieged, and how the bread was going to be really bad. Do you remember how he was to take all the stuff and make Ezekiel bread, as it's called? How bad was the famine going to be according to Ezekiel chapter 5? Really bad, and how can we prove that? They were going to resort to cannibalism. Now, by the way, this isn't the first time we hear about this cannibalism when Ezekiel prophesies that they're going to eat their sons and their daughters. Actually, go back to Leviticus 26 again. Remember, back in Leviticus 26, we spent a lot of time there the last few weeks because back before the nation even went into the promised land, God through Moses laid out for them their whole history. And he gave them their promises if they're obedient and their curses if they're disobedient. And in chapter 6 of Leviticus, look at verse 29. Leviticus 26, 29. God says, you shall eat the flesh of your sons and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. Well, we've got to go back to verses 27 and 28. Why is he saying they're going to eat their sons and daughters? Verse 27 says, but if in spite of all this, after all the judgments he sends on them, if in spite of all this, you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. And I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins and then he says, you're going to eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. But you know what? This wasn't the first time they had been told that either. In Leviticus 26, this isn't the first time they've been told that. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Because remember, chapter 28, Deuteronomy, sorry, the whole book of Deuteronomy is the repeating of the law. That's what the word means. The second law, the Deuteronomy, is the second repeating. In chapter 28, look at verses 53 through 55. Deuteronomy 28, verses 53 and following. God says, And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and your daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you, in the, se and in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. The man who is the most tender and most refined among you will begrudge food to his brother, to the wife he embraces, to the last of the children whom he has left, so that he will not give to any of them any of the flesh of his children whom he is eating, because he has nothing else left in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in all your towns. How's that? He says it's, going to be, it's, not, it's not only going to be so bad they're going to eat their own children. Even your most tender among you is not even going to share the flesh of his children with anybody else. He's going to keep it for himself. That's how bad the judgment of God was going to be on the nation of Israel. God promised them way before they even got there. He said, look, if you follow my rules and my commands and my statutes and my teachings, and by the way, Jesus himself said his commands are not burdensome. He said, if you do that, I'm going to bless you. If you don't, I'm going to bring discipline on you. And if you don't listen, I'll bring some more. And if you don't listen, I'm going to amp it up. It'll even get to the point where I'm going to just pour out my fury upon you, nation of Israel. And in front of all the nations, you're going to be eating your children because that's how bad it's going to get. And if you know of anything of the history of Israel, this literally did happen. Go with me to Jeremiah chapter 19. Jeremiah chapter 19. Jeremiah even prophesied the same thing before Ezekiel did. In Jeremiah chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. Jeremiah says, Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall no more be called Topeth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. And in this place I will make void the plans of Judah and Jerusalem, and will cause their people to fall by the sword because, before their enemies, 
and by the hand of those who seek their life. I will give their dead bodies for food to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the earth, and I will make this city a horror, a thing to be hissed at. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified, and this hiss will, and will hiss because of all its wounds. And I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and their daughters, and everyone shall eat the flesh of his neighbor, and in, in the siege and in the distress with which their enemies and those who seek their life after them. Jeremiah said the same thing. So when Ezekiel prophesies that this is going to happen, it's actually already been told by Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, also in Leviticus. Jeremiah's probably prophesied it. Go over to the book of Lamentations, chapter 2. Lamentations, chapter 2. Look at verse 20, and then chapter 4, verse 10. Here we have an account of when it actually happens. Lamentations, chapter 2, verse 20 says this. Look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb? the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? As Jeremiah was lamenting all that was happening, he talks about the fact that they were going to eat their children. Go over to chapter 4, verse 10. Look at chapter 4, verse 10 of Lamentations. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. Um... I guess what I'm going to ask you before we go any further is, do you think God was serious when he said these things and did these things? You're going to see a little bit later on the importance of us realizing if God says something, he means it. And that's very important for all of us to keep in mind. So I'm going to ask you this question. Now, the answer is in our section. If you want to go back to Ezekiel chapter 5, the answer is in our passage for tonight. But here's my question for you. Why was God's judgment here so severe? Because they didn't pay attention. It's part of it. Oh, you just brought out one of our first points. Thomas says, because you rebelled against my rules and their wickedness more than the nations. Go to chapter 5, look at verses 5 through 9. I'm going to pull out for you tonight two reasons from this passage why the judgment is so severe. God tells them in this passage why it's so severe. In chapter 5, verses 5 through 9, Thus says the Lord God, This is Jerusalem. I have sent, set her in the center of the nations, with countries all around her. And she has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the nations, and against my statutes more than the countries all around her. For they have rejected my rules and have not walked in my statutes." Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you are more turbulent than the nations that are all around you and have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules and have not even acted according to my rules of the nations that are all around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, even I, am against you and I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. And because of all your abominations, I will do with you what I have never yet done and the like of which I will never do again. So, one of the reasons we see here why this judgment is so severe, we've already seen from Leviticus, he said, if you don't listen, I'm going to do this. And if you don't listen, I'm going to do this. And if you don't listen again, at a certain point, I'm going to multiply your judgment sevenfold, even to the point where you're going to be so judged by me, you're going to have no food, no water, and you're going to eat your own children. But a reason, according to here, is God said, I set you in the midst of all the nations. If you know of anything of the world map back at the time, the reason God brought them into that land that he had set apart for them was because it was the center of the world, if you will. 
at that time when the, the world began, it kind of began in that area of the globe. And from there, people migrated, as you know, throughout the, the world. But the center of the world was there at the time. That's why the world powers all were there. At the same time, if you knew anything about travel and trade routes and how to get from Egypt to Assyria or other places, you have to go through Jerusalem. God had made it so that he would take his people, a people that he had called to himself, a people that he would reveal himself to, and he brought them into that place so that they would be a light to the nations and reveal to the, the nations around them that there is a God and this is who he is. But instead of being the light to the nations, he put them in the middle of those nations, and what did they do? They, they were darkness, and they actually, like a black hole, sucked in everything the nations did, and the Bible says did even worse. Why did they do even worse? Well, the Bible tells us it's because God had already told them, and they knew better. Go with me to Romans. Skip a book, Mark, in Ezekiel 5. Go with me to Romans chapter 3. Paul's dealing in this whole section of Romans about the fact that all are guilty. There's no one righteous, not even one. But in chapter 3, before he gets to that section, as he's about to lay the case that Jew and Gentile alike are all equally guilty before God, listen to what he says in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? And Paul says there's much advantage in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The Jews had an advantage. Their advantage was God revealed himself to them and spoke to them, led them through the Red Sea, led them by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, gave them his word, sent prophets to them. They had a great advantage in the fact that God revealed himself to them in ways that he didn't reveal himself to the other nations. Now, God did reveal himself to the other nations through creation and all that stuff. But the nation of Israel had, had, they had a greater advantage. Go to chapter, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. God actually explained that to him way, way back at the beginning. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, listen to verses 1 through 8. And now, O Israel, listen. Listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you, and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the, the, the Baal of Peor. But you held fast to the Lord your God, you, sorry, you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear of all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as this law that I set before you today? You see it? They were given a role. And you're to obey me, and you're to be doing it in the midst of the nations that I put you, so that the nations will see and the peoples will see what God is there, what people is there that has a God that walks with them like these people have, and their God is. Again, like we've already touched on, they unfortunately even though they had a greater responsibility and a greater advantage in the fact that God had spoken to them, 
they ignored God and ignored his word and acted just like the other nations. And because they, this is important, because they knew better, their sin was greater. Actually, the Bible actually talks about that. Go to Luke chapter 10. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Luke chapter 10, look at verses 12 through 16. Let's start in verse 13. Eh, I go, I'll go to verse 12. I'm second guessing myself here, but it's hard to stop somewhere in the middle here. Verse 12, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. When he talks about them going to a town, if they don't listen, shake the dust off and move on. And then he starts laying into a teaching here that I want you to see. It is going to be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Why is it going to be more bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah, which, as you know, God destroyed that city because of their wickedness? Why will it be easier on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for Capernaum and Bethsaida? What's that? They, they, Sodom and Gomorrah didn't have God's law, but go ahead. They not only knew who walked in their midst, God himself walked among them, performed miracles in their presence. They saw the hand of God. They saw God himself. And you ever heard people talk about to whom much is given, much will be required? You ever heard people quote that? Listen, we think that's talking to the rich folks. For years we've quoted to whom much is given, much is required. Actually, that's not the context of the passage. Go to Luke chapter 12, and let me show you the context of that quote. Luke chapter 12, look at verses 47 and 48. Luke 12, verse 47 says this. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. In other words, this to whom much is given, much will be required in the context is tied to how much light we've received. Those who knew because God showed it to them, they'll be held in higher accountability. Thus, those of us who preach and teach, as James chapter 3 says, those don't all seek to be teachers, folks, because those of you who do so will be held in higher accountability. Why? Well, part of it is because those of us who have been called to preach and teach the word are to be spending all of our time in this book, not at committee meetings, but don't get me going on that. We're to be spending time in the word and knowing the word. But at the same time, those of us, those of you that are out here today that are teachers and you teach a Sunday school class or a Bible study, you know full well you get far more than the rest of the people get because you've spent the time throughout the week studying the word of God and you learn a whole lot of stuff. You can't teach it all at the same time, but you learn so much. And the more God reveals to you, the more you're going to be held accountable for it because you knew. The nations that don't know will be judged because of their sin. They did have some revelation. There has been some light. They have had some way that God's revealed himself to them so that they're without excuse. But there are those who have been given more. Listen closely. 
What does that say about the United States of America then? Have we not been given more light than other nations? For years, this was the, the nation that sent missionaries all over the globe. Do you realize other nations are having to send missionaries to us now? Because we have turned our back on God and it gets worse and worse. Oh, we're not more wicked than the rest of the nations in what we do because all nations sin. But we are in comparison to how much light we've received. And if that's the Bible's true, and it is, to whom much is given, much will be required. And part of the reason why the nation of Israel was given such a hard judgment here in Ezekiel 5 is because God said, I revealed myself to you. I put you in the midst of the nations. I meant you to be a light to the nations. And you actually took on the sins of the nations around you. And even worse, because you knew better. To whom much is given, much will be required, is not in accordance with how much money you've gotten. It's in accordance with how much God's revealed to you. There's a second reason, though, in this passage, and you'll find that also in Ezekiel chapter 5. Look at verse 11. It's not only because they worshiped idols that they're being judged so severely, but because they did it in the temple of God. Look at Ezekiel 5, verse 11. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary... With all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will withdraw my eye. I will withdraw. My eye will not spare and I will have no pity. Why was he judging them so severely? It wasn't just that they had worshipped idols. They had been doing that for years. But their worshiping of the idols had made its way into the temple of God. Now I'm going to just show you a couple of places that talk about this. We're going to get into much more detail, specific detail, when we get to chapter 8 of Ezekiel, because God's been going to be taken by, I'm sorry, Ezekiel's going to be taken by God into, he's going to, in a vision, be taken into the temple and see what's actually going on inside the temple. And when I take you to that study, it's going to shock you. I'll be honest with you. You'll be really surprised. And you're also going to hear some things that are going to also make you go, they're doing that now. So just be ready for that. Just be ready for that. But go with me real quickly to 2 Kings chapter 21. 2 Kings chapter 21, look at verses 1 through 9. It says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab, the king of Israel, had done. And he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven. By the way, that's the stars, worshipping the star, sun and the moon and the stars. And he, he built altars for the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. But let me just say, folks, please, I hope you're not checking your horoscope every day. Hope you're not living your life according to the stars. That's worshiping. That's having your life guided by the stars and the sun and the moon. And it, the Bible's real clear, it's sin. You'd be surprised how many Christians say, well, my horoscope said this was going to happen. He built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, 
He sat in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I'll put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander anymore out of the land that I give to their fathers, if only they will be careful to do according to all that I've commanded them, and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they didn't listen, and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done, whom the Lord had destroyed before the people of Israel. See, they've been worshiping Baal and these other false gods for years. Manasseh took it up a notch, and he brought those altars into the temple, the house of the Lord. Go to Ezekiel chapter 23. Look at verses 36 through 39. The Lord said to me, Son of man, will you judge Ahola and Aholiba? Remember from our study last time, who's Ahola, who's Aholiba? Samaria is Ahola, and in Judah is Aholiba in Jerusalem. Lord said to me, Son of man, will you judge Ahola and Aholiba? Declare to them their abominations, for they have committed adultery, and blood is on their hands. With their idols they have committed adultery, and they have even offered up to them for food the children of whom they had borne to me. Moreover, this they have done to me. They have defiled my sanctuary on the same day and profaned my Sabbaths. For when they had slaughtered their children in the sacrifice to their idols, on the same day they came into my sanctuary to profane it, and behold, this is what they did in my house. Now, is anybody starting to get another idea as to why God brought the judgment so that they'd eat their own children? A part of their false worship to these false gods was to offer their children as sacrifices to these false gods. And God, in essence, is saying, you want to kill your kids? You eat them. You eat them. Where are they doing this now? in the temple of the Lord. Go to Jeremiah chapter 7. Yes, sir. Isn't that a perfect parallel to when they came out of Egypt and they built the calf? He had them pound the gold down into dust. And then drink it. That's a, exactly a wonderful picture of what we're talking about. You want this? Eat it. Jeremiah 7, verses 30 through 34. Jeremiah chapter 7, starting in verse 30. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Topeth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no more be called Topeth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Topeth because there is no room elsewhere. And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. And I will silence the cities of Judah, and in the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall become a waste. Again, where are they done? They've taken the false worship, brought it into the temple of God. Now, we're going to see, like I said, much more about this in chapter 8 when we get there. But I told you there were two reasons that I was going to pull out from the passage as to why the judgment was so severe. I'm going to give you a third reason that's in this passage, but it's not as clear. There is a third reason that isn't quite as obvious, but I find it in verse 12. Verse number 12. He says, A third part you shall die of, pe of you shall die of pestilence, and to be consumed with famine in your midst. A third part shall fall by the sword all around you, and a third part I will scatter to all the winds, 
and will unshield the sword after them. Because of their sin, they were to experience plague, famine, sword, and scattering. Because of these, because of the sin, and the defiling of the temple of God, the Jews would, because of the defiling of the temple of God, the Jews would have no way to and nowhere to offer their sacrifices for sin, and therefore they would have to bear their sins without relief. I want you to stick with me here. He said, I'm going to bring to you famine, sword, plague, and another judgment is scattering. And we don't realize it right offhand, but the scattering is actually probably the most severe because where had God said the place was to be that they were to offer their sacrifices to him so that he would cover their sin? Was it to be allowed on the high places? No, it was to be in Jerusalem only. And that's what they had been told. And by him scattering them and destroying Jerusalem, the place where God had said, I will cover your sin when you offer a sacrifice, a right sacrifice there, that place was no longer there. And they weren't able to get there. And therefore, how were their sins to be covered? Remember every year on the Day of Atonement, the priests were to offer to cover the sins for the people. But now there's no way for that to happen. And now they're stuck. Well, there's been a way all along, and it's been by faith. But I'm just going to say this. How silly it was of them to reject and ignore the only way they had to be temporarily spared the penalty for their sins through the ritual offering of the atoning blood of the lambs and the goats. Kind of silly, isn't it? That they would actually destroy the one way that they had, had given to be covered for, for their sins for a time? Well, let's take it to us. How even more foolish for us to reject the once and for all atoning blood of God's own Son. See, the Bible says there's only one way for us to be saved, correct? And that's through faith in Jesus Christ. And the book of Hebrews goes into great detail to say, if you don't receive this, there's no other sacrifice for sin. There's no other way you be made right. And as easy as it is for us to say how foolish it was for them to, to just ignore the one way that God had given for them to be a, have their sins atoned for, at least temporarily... How even more foolish it is for us in this nation and us as a people to reject the only way that God has made for us to be made right. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verses 26 through 31. Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verses 26 through 31. The Hebrew writer says, if we, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who has said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, let me help you out here. 
This is a passage that a lot of people have tried to use to say you can be saved and lose your salvation. That's not what this passage is saying at all. If you let the whole context speak out for the whole book, you'll see that the Bible has used the whole of Scripture to teach as well. The Bible is very, very clear. If you are truly saved and you've received His Spirit as a sign that you've been confirmed, if you will, that the Spirit of God has saved you, that God's within you, if you've been sealed by the Spirit of God, you've been sealed until the day of redemption, you will never lose your salvation. And it has nothing to do with you because Jesus himself said, I will lose none that the Father has given me. So as some people say, well, you can walk away. Well, then you were never given to the Son. Because Jesus himself said, I'll lose none that the Father's given me. But as we have seen throughout the scripture, there is plenty of scripture that teaches that there are many who profess that they are saved, profess that they believe, but they don't possess the sealing of the Spirit. And to those the Hebrew writer, that's why throughout the scriptures you'll say, he'll say, but I don't believe so of you. You've been sealed and all this stuff. But then he gives these scary warnings all throughout the book of Hebrews that has caused people to wonder. But what he's saying here, because the Hebrew writer was writing to a group of Jews who'd become Christians, but because of the persecution for their faith, they're thinking about going back to Judaism. That's why throughout this whole book he says, Jesus is greater than Moses. He's greater than the angels. Why would you even try to go back? And then throughout this he keeps saying, oh, by the way, if you have heard... If you've had revealed to you and you understand the truth and you walk away from it, guess what? There's no other way you can be saved. You're, you're walking toward judgment. And so, folks, what I also want to say to you is this. The Bible is very, very clear. If we know in the book of chapter, Hebrews chapter 6, he says the rain that falls often on the land and produces either thorns or thistles or good stuff. In other words, how the soil responds to the rain will show whether or not it's truly saved. And I am, I'm a weird guy, I'll admit it. I'm just weird because the Bible says we're peculiar people, and I look around the room and I'm not alone. <laughs> but here's the deal. I actually like the fact that things are getting crazy. You know why? It's making my job a whole lot easier. See, for years I pastored churches full of people who all said they were saved, to be honest with you, I've dealt with a lot of folks that I sure wondered if they ever were. It's not my job to determine who is and who isn't, but I sure didn't see a whole lot of evidence of the Spirit, which is love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and kindness and self-control. I spent most of my time as a pastor dealing with the dissensions and the fashions and the envy and the strife and the business meetings and all that junk. And listen to me, listen to me. The Bible actually says in Galatians chapter 5, that's evidence of the flesh. But... It's been easy for many years for people to pretend to be Christian. As the things get to get a little more crazy in the days to come, it's going to be harder and harder to pretend to be a Christian. But I say to you who are here, because I don't know where everybody stands. I pray everybody in this room knows the Lord, but I don't know, and only you and the Lord know. If you haven't put your full faith in Jesus there's no other sacrifice for sins. Oh, by the way, that means it's not, G I believe in Jesus and I'm trying to be a good person. See, because if you say, I believe in Jesus and I'm trying to be a good person, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to heaven because I believe in Jesus and I've kept all the rules. I've done all the things they said to do. And some people have been taught to keep the sacraments and then you'll have grace because you've kept the sacraments. Listen, if you're putting your faith in anything but Jesus himself, that's another sacrifice for sin. There's no other sacrifice for sin except for Jesus himself. And if they were stupid 
to ignore the one way that God had not only given them to have their sins partially atoned for, on a, or, you know, covered for a season, which was also a picture of the real thing, how foolish would we be to have heard and seen and then walk away from the only way we can be made right with God? And I pray that there's no one in here who goes away in these times of chaos as it looks like things are going to get worse and worse. My prayer is everybody in this room, stay strong in the faith. Some of you say, wait a minute, Jim, doesn't it say, look at verse 29, how much more worse do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? In other words, he was sanctified. No, remember, we've talked about this before. The Bible is very clear that at the moment Jesus died on the cross, Jesus paid for the sins of the entire world. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, God was in Christ reconciling all things to himself, Things in heaven, things on the earth, and things under the earth. The Bible shows us in Matthew 18 that there was a man who was forgiven the great debt, but he didn't forgive his neighbor, therefore he was thrown into the prison. Well, the Bible shows us that that is evidence that the man who had been forgiven the great debt never received that forgiveness because the way it's demonstrated that we've really received it is we will forgive our brothers. And so what I want you to hear is this. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. The whole world has had their sins paid for. They've been forgiven. They have to now receive it. And the way it's received is by faith in Jesus. And it'll be evidenced by our life, by the evidence of the Spirit within us. When it says they were sanctified, Jesus had already paid for their sins. But if they reject it, they've rejected the Spirit of grace who's offering this salvation. And so I just say this to you. It's going to get wild. But if you're in Christ, you're going to be fine. You may be surprised, though, that some of the people you thought were amongst us weren't of us. Go to 1 John chapter 2 real quick. Then we'll spend the last 15 minutes we have left dealing with that remnant part of this passage. 1 John chapter 2. Look at verse 18. And how much more do these words ring true so much closer to the end? 1 John chapter 2 verse 18. Children... It's the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who's the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. For those of us who are in Christ, who have truly been born again, been sealed by the Spirit, you'll abide. But there's going to be those who are of us who are not going to stick around as things get worse. The Bible says, let them go. That's evidence that they never were of us. Didn't Jesus say, many will say, didn't I do that? Didn't I do this? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Now, we must spend the rest of our time tonight looking at something I've previously mentioned tonight, and also we've been spoken of briefly throughout our study. But a fuller study at this point will be really a benefit, I think. Remember those few hairs that Ezekiel was told to spare the judgment and hide in the hem of his robe? 
All along, God has promised that as bad as Israel got, he would never fully wipe them out. He would always preserve a remnant by grace. Now, for years, we've heard people talk about the remnant, and they try to act like that's the church. Well, biblically, the remnant is not the church. The remnant is Israel. There's always been a remnant of Jews chosen by grace that God has kept throughout. There are those who are part of the Jews that are part of the church in the church age who come to be faith in Jesus Christ, and they're added to the church's number. But when the Bible talks of the remnant, it's not speaking of the church. The Bible's speaking of this group of Jews that God is going to keep for himself so that he keeps, completes all of his promises. Go to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 9. I'm going to read to you just a bunch of passages real quickly that kind of lay this out for you. If you want to do a bigger study on this, write these down. These will get you started into a launch of a fun, fun study on the remnant. In Isaiah chapter 1, look at verse 9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. The nation of Israel realizes through the prophet Isaiah that if God hadn't kept them some survivors, they would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah because they deserved it just as much, if not more. Go to Isaiah chapter 10. Look at verses 20 through 27. Isaiah 10 verses 20 through 27. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty of God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike you with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. So here he says, there's a day coming when there's going to be a remnant of Israel that will return to God. They'll no longer lean on the nations that God has used to judge them. They'll return to him, and he's going to do something with them. Don't ever forget that group of the hair that he said, save this small portion of those that will be scattered Remember, we also looked at the fact that some of those are going to go through a fire and a trial themselves to be purified. But there's going to be a remnant. There's always been a remnant. Go to Zephaniah. Go, keep going. Just go to the Z section of the scriptures, is what I like to call it, over there by Zephaniah and Zechariah. Go to Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 2. Look at verse 7. The seacoast shall become the possession of who? the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. Here we see there's going to be a remnant in the last days that's going to be able to inhabit the land and have the seacoast. Go to Zephaniah chapter 3, look at verses 9 through 20. Zephaniah 3, 9 through 20. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, 
that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones. Let me just stop you real quick. Here he's talking about the salvation of the nations at the end, when all the nations in the kingdom of God, uh, the millennial kingdom will come and worship Jesus there in Jerusalem. But if you remember from our Revelation study, these are the ones who come to faith during the tribulation period because of the preaching of the 144,000. These are the, the daughter of my dispersed ones. The dispersed ones are the 144,000. You'll see that in a second, a little bit more clearly. All right. On that day, verse 11, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. If you remember back in our study of Revelation, in chapter 14, the description of 144,000, and no lie was found in their mouth. That was tied back to here. There's going to be, as you remember from our study of Revelation, in chapter 7, the 144,000 going out into all the earth, beginning of the tribulation period. And through their preaching, they're going to be protected by God. But through their preaching, multitudes upon multitudes of, of the nations are going to come to faith during that time. And they're going to live during the millennial kingdom. And they're going to be the daughters of his dispersed ones. And these are those ones in Israel he's going to leave there. And no lie will be found in their mouth. This is because of the preaching of the 144,000. I think the Bible shows us that the 144,000 is a portion of that remnant that he's preserving for himself. Go to Zechariah now, chapter 10. Jump over Haggai and go to Zechariah chapter 10. Look at verses 6 through 12. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before, though I scattered them among the nations. Yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live in return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the, in the Lord and they shall walk in His name, declares the Lord. Now, I share this with you tonight for a reason. A week from tonight, we're going to be voting as a nation, and many people have already voted. But we're going to be voting as a nation a week from tonight to pick who we think is to be the next president. And we've already talked about it plenty. I don't think there's a person in the room that thinks, I think the person is the best choice, whoever you're voting for. We're all having to deal with the best we can do. But I'm going to challenge you to be faithful to the Scriptures. The Bible said years ago, God Himself to the nation of Israel made a promise to Abraham. He said, though people that bless you, I'll bless. People that curse you, I'll curse. Folks, you want to pray on Tuesday night for the mercy of God, like I said? You vote in line with the mercy of God. 
and you vote for the ones who will be pro-Israel because as a nation, we need to be pro-Israel. God's going to do a work. He's going to refine them. He's going to put them through a tribulation period that's coming. There's some stuff going to happen on the globe where the Bible says every nation on the earth will be against them. As a, according to the scriptures, there will be a point that we as the United States, if we even exist at that time, will be one of the many nations who are all against Israel because the scripture says every nation on the earth will be against them in the very last time period. So we know that that's coming. But we're to be the salt to the earth. The salt does not stop the decay, but it slows it. It was a preservative. And I'm going to beg you to vote for those who will be pro-Israel, those who will stand with Israel in these days. There will come a time when we won't. I know the Bible says it, but I don't want it to happen in my lifetime. So would you just pray and vote, not according to your party, not according to who my family's always voted for, but according to whom God leads you to, and be praying, which one will be the most for Israel? Which one will be the most for Israel? Because that's the most important thing of all that. I hate to sound unpatriotic, but I'm not as interested in who will be best for America. I want to line my life up with not God's plan for America as much as God's plan for the world and the days that he's chosen me to live. And the Bible says that we need to be focused on Israel and watching and praying for the peace of Jerusalem, which is only going to come when Jesus himself comes back. We know what's going to be happening, and there's a remnant that has always been there, and he knows who they are, and he's kept a remnant through every generation of Jews. There'll come a point, though, where he's done, and he's going to make a full end to all the nations, and the only ones that survive are the Jews that are the remnant and the nations of the people who believe through their preaching during the tribulation period. Thank God we'll be taken away before that. Real quickly, we got time to do this. Thank the Lord we're going to finish Ezekiel 5. All right, go to Ezekiel 5, look at verses 13 through 15. I didn't take the time tonight because of what we have left to read to you, Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 32. But in your section of notes on the remnant, please write down Romans 11, 1 through 32, and go and read that now with the understanding of, is God done with Israel? Paul asks, and he said, no. Is he done with them? No. Is he cast them off forever? No. He's waiting till the full number of Gentiles to be saved, and then... He's going to finish what he started with Israel. So that's an important passage. But in Ezekiel chapter 5, look at verses 13 through 15. Thus shall my anger spend itself, and I will vent my fury upon them, and satisfy myself, and they shall know that I am the Lord, that I have spoken in my jealousy when I spend my fury upon them. Moreover, I will make you a desolation and an object of reproach among the nations all around you, and in the sight of all who pass by. You shall be a reproach and a taunt a warning and a horror to the nations all around you when I execute judgments on you in anger and fury and with furious rebukes, I am the Lord, I have spoken. God's judgments on Israel were for the nations around them to see it. Did you see what he's saying? I'm going to do something so horrendous in your midst that the nations that are around you will see it and they'll be shocked. One day the Bible though says that Israel will wake up and by God's grace return to Jehovah and receive his Messiah, Jesus, by faith. On that same day and at that same time, the Bible says that the nations will then see what God has done with Israel and they too will know that Jehovah alone is God. I want you to turn with me to Ezekiel 39. We'll close tonight in Ezekiel 39, verses 21 through 29. Just like God 
used his judgment on the nation of Israel for the other nations to see, he's going to do something in Israel that is going to be so miraculous, so amazing, when the whole world tries to wipe them off the face of the earth. The Bible says in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that he's going to do something that is so astounding, so supernatural, that the world and the nations will all know that God did this and he's for Israel. And listen to what this prophecy says in chapter 39, verses 21 through 29. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. And I will be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and all the treachery they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore and I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. By the way, has this happened yet? No, it hasn't. Oh, there was a regathering, as you know, after the captivity in Babylon and so. But actually, as you've heard me say, only like 5% of the Israelites even went back into the, the, land, the nation and the land and rebuilt Jerusalem at that time. And as you know, when Jesus came on the scene, they had become a nation again, but they weren't autonomous. The Romans were in power. And because of the rejection of him as the Messiah, they were scattered again, as Jesus said was going to happen. But all along, the prophecies have said, throughout the prophecies of the coming judgment, the coming judgment, the coming judgment, there was also in the midst of it, but I'm not going to make a full end of you. I'll keep some of the hairs protected in my robe. Oh, some of those are going to go through the fire, but not all of them. And I'm going to protect them. And there's going to be this remnant. There has been. And in the end, in the same way that God used his judgment on the nation of Israel to show who he was because of their wickedness, one day he's going to do something in their midst that the rest of the world says, there's only one God. And it's the God of Israel. And the Jews are going to say, there's only one Messiah, and his name is Jesus. Be praying for that. I love you all. We'll see you in four weeks. Yes, sir, you want to say something? Go for it. Okay, head. go ahead. Psalm 122, 6 through 9. Yes. Yep, exactly. Yeah, well, I just did a radio program on that, so if you all listen to my radio program, I'll have covered it, but... As we'll close, let me just read to you. This is a great closing. I think it is a great closing, Jeff. A song of a sense of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, and as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say peace will be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Folks, I pray that you're praying for our country. But pray for Israel just as much, if not more. We'll see you in, we'll see you in four weeks, unfortunately.